Well, you've already noticed that uh, the theme we've chosen for these seasons of Advent and Christmas is simply keeping Christmas. And uh, you'll notice and hear more about that in just a moment. But would you stand again with me if you're able and let's read our scripture together this morning. Uh, Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You may be seated. Well, along with noticing the theme of this new series, perhaps you've noticed, being the thoughtful, intelligent people that you are, that there is no command given in the pages of Scripture to celebrate the birth of the Savior. And neither are there any prescriptions in its pages for those who may wish to do so. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, In a sense, that makes the whole thing entirely optional for us. Uh, You can choose to celebrate Christmas or not celebrate Christmas and still be in the will of God. But for those who choose to do so, uh, there are two basic questions that we'd like to raise and then answer at least to a significant degree. In this series, first, what should it mean for us who claim to be biblical Christians to keep, or another way of saying it, to rightly observe Christmas? And second, are there any meaningful models in the pages of Scripture itself that provide us with clues to the priorities and practices that might lead us to a deeper, more satisfying, and spiritually nourishing observance. So what does it mean to keep Christmas? seems to me that nearly every Christmas, as long long back as I can remember, someone trots out that well-worn warning, keep Christ in Christmas. Keep Christ in Christmas. It's often occurred to me that No one would actually have to say it. Were it not true that what our modern American culture celebrates at this time of year is actually not Christmas, but something quite different, a secular, humanistic, materialistic 
consumeristic festival to which we have affixed the borrowed label Christmas. The well-known 20th century British author C.S. Lewis in 1954, published an essay which he titled Xmas and Christmas in his own whimsical style, Xmas and Christmas, a lost chapter from Herodotus. And it's about certain winter customs of the islanders of Nyaturb, which upon examination turns out to be Britain spelled backwards. And here's an excerpt. In the middle of winter, when fogs and rains most abound, They have a great festival which they call Xmas, and for 50 days they prepare for it in the fashion I shall describe. First of all, every citizen is obliged to send to each of his friends and relations a square piece of hard paper stamped with a picture, which in their speech is called an Xmas card. And because all men must send these cards, the marketplace is filled with the crowd of those buying them, so that there is great labor and weariness. They also send gifts to one another, suffering the same things about the gifts as about the cards, or even worse. For every citizen has to guess the value of the gift which every friend will send to him, so that he may send one of equal value, whether he can afford it or not. And they buy as gifts for one another such things as no man ever bought for himself. For the sellers... Understanding the custom, put forth all kinds of trumpery, and whatever being useless and ridiculous they have been unable to sell throughout the year, they now sell as an Xmas gift. This 50 days of preparation is called in their barbarian speech the Xmas rush. But when the day of the festival comes, then most of the citizens, being exhausted with the rush, lie in bed till noon. But in the evening they eat five times as much supper as on other days, And crowning themselves with crowns of paper, they become intoxicated. And on the day after Xmas, they are very grave, being internally disordered by the supper and the drinking and reckoning how much they have spent on gifts and on the wine. But a few among the Nyaturbians have also a festival, separate unto themselves, called Christmas, which is on the same day as Xmas. And those who keep Christmas, doing the opposite to the majority of the Nyaturbians, rise early on that day with shining faces and go before sunrise to certain temples where they partake of a sacred feast. And in most of the temples they set out images of a fair woman with a newborn child on her knees and certain animals and shepherds adoring the child. But the claim that Xmas and Christmas are the same is not credible. C.S. Lewis. So as those thoroughly immersed, enculturated, and indoctrinated into the other festival that Lewis called Xmas, before we can answer the question of what it means to keep Christmas, we first have to answer another question specifically, what in fact is Christmas anyway? The etymology of the word is quite simple. It is Christ's Mass, originally a a service of worships, remembering, celebrating the birth of Christ, a birth wrapped in mystery from beginning to end, the mystery we just read about together. A young woman, probably no older than 15 years of age, conceiving in her womb 
not according to the normal biological means of conception by which every other human child is conceived, but only by the overshadowing power of the Spirit of God. And bearing a son who would be called the Son of the Most High, in Hebrew, El Elyon, the Most High God, and who will reign on an eternal throne. This mystery we call the Incarnation. Now, if you go to Webster's Dictionary and search the word incarnation, the first definition that you'll encounter is the appearance of a God or a spirit in earthly form. The appearance of a God or spirit in earthly form. But the claim that the Bible makes is not that God merely appeared in human form, like a phantom or These days we might say a hologram. But rather that in the birth of Jesus Christ, the eternal God literally took to himself what he did not possess before, that is, human flesh. The word incarnation means simply in flesh. So that when we claim on the authority of God's word that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, we are claiming that he is God in human flesh. To the disciple Philip, Jesus would one day say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Recall with me the words with which John the Apostle opened his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And by the way, to the Greeks, the Word was the organizing principle of everything, the logos. It, it was the, the, the reality at the core of all of existence. That, that's what they called the Word, the logos. And so what John is doing is he's taking the Word from Greek culture and applying it to Jesus. The, 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 the origin, the source, the organizing principle of all that exists, seen and unseen, the Greeks called the logos or the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all of a sudden the word is, is not just an idea, not just a, um, a force, if you will, not just a, a principle but a person. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. To the church in Philippi, the Apostle Paul wrote regarding Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." And to the Corinthians, he wrote that God was in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their wrongdoings against them. And if you would entertain the notion 
that this union of God and man, deity and humanity, spirit and flesh in the person of Jesus Christ is of only secondary importance. Consider this, that a deity who merely appeared in human form but did not, in fact, take on human flesh could never atone for the sins of humanity by suffering and dying in our place and rising from the dead. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible says, there is no forgiveness of sins. The 18th century Scottish songwriter Mary MacDougall MacDonald, isn't that a great Scottish name? Mary MacDougall MacDonald penned these words in the first verse of her Christmas carol, Child in the Manger. First verse goes like this, Child in the Manger, infant of Mary, outcast and stranger, Lord of all, child who inherits all our transgressions, all our demerits on him fall. You see, when we gaze into the eyes of the baby in the manger, we are gazing into the eyes of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as they pertain to the doctrine of the incarnation, the ancient creeds of the church reflect the struggle of Christian leaders to first of all come to terms with the mystery of the union of God and man in the person of Jesus Christ that they were reading about in the Bible. And then to painstakingly preserve, articulate and preserve this central, critical, biblical doctrine in carefully crafted words. For example, the Apostles' Creed, the earliest form of which comes to us from the 4th century, states it simply, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The Nicene Creed, also from the 4th century, goes into greater detail. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen listen to the, the, the strain in these words, to the strain to declare him God. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And then there's the Athanasian Creed written in the 5th century, Now this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. 
And if you'll bear with me for one more, finally the Westminster Confession of Faith, drafted in 1646, which reads this way, The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? Right? He who once existed exclusively in divinity through a profound mystery inserted himself into human history, in human flesh. His, His divinity is not lost in his humanity, neither is his humanity swallowed up in divinity. And those faithful men who have gone before us and who wrestled with the revelation of God's word wanted those of us who follow to understand that we can't have a Jesus who is only a little bit divine and a little bit human. On the contrary, in Jesus Christ, they want us to know that we see the one who is 100% God and 100% man 100% of the time. This is why Paul wrote to Timothy, I think, saying, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. (laughs) Great indeed is the mystery. Such a staggering fact but fact nonetheless. And and the mystery forces us to our knees, doesn't it? Not only because we, we can't wrap our minds around it, but also because when something of the sheer force of it all begins to sink in, we have to bow before it and before him to contemplate the mystery of what God did in sending his son to earth is all by itself more than enough to engage and enthrall our minds and our hearts, not only throughout the seasons of Advent and Christmas, but for the rest of our lives. And this, I think, is at the heart of what it means to keep Christmas. And it's for this reason that I want to assert that that only a Christian can fully keep Christmas. Christmas. The Scottish theologian John Murray said, these are high and heavenly doctrines and for that reason of little appeal to dull minds and darkened hearts. Only Christians light up when they hear these things. Only Christians affirm these truths about Jesus, though the power of it, the magnitude of it, the depth of it humbles our puny minds. 
So let me ask you, is, is it possible when we as those who claim to be Christian choose to celebrate this season in ways that are more reflective of the core beliefs of the pagan culture surrounding us that we are not, in fact, keeping Christmas. Is that possible? And I I do not at all mean to be a buzzkill or a Debbie Downer in this because I personally love so much about the lights and the decorations and the music and the traditions of this season. But someone once observed that in life, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And is it possible in the ways that we choose to spend the days and the hours and the moments of this season that we might just fail to keep the main thing the main thing? Think that's possible? I remember in one recent December taking in one of those drive-through displays of of lights and scenery and, and there were lots of Disney characters and and other popular images that appeal to the child in all of us. And it's just beautiful light displays and coordinated music. You know, it's one of the things you roll down your window. And I guess we don't do that anymore, do we? You roll down your window. (laughs) And And I thought, well, this is really fun. It's really cool. And then another thought occurred to me, where is Jesus in all of this? And right about the time that that question was forming in my mind, kind of skittering across my gray matter, I happened to notice out of the corner of my eye a a nativity scene. But it wasn't on the main route. It wasn't up front. It wasn't the thing that captured your attention. It was set back behind all of the scenery and all of the sparkling lights. It would have been very easy to miss. There back in the darkness of the night, unnoticed by most, faintly illuminated, were Mary and Joseph, the baby Jesus, and a few obligatory barnyard animals. And I thought, now there's a cultural statement, if there ever was one. The nativity upstaged and functionally obliterated by what C.S. Lewis would have called Xmas. So where or in whom do we find models for keeping Christmas, for keeping the main thing the main thing? And so for this today and the following Sundays and then on Christmas Eve, we're going to be talking about models. So this morning I'd like to propose as Exhibit A for keeping Christmas the model of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And ask the question, what does Mary have to teach us about keeping Christmas? And from a purely historical perspective, it may seem like a kind of a stupid question, right? Because, of course, she was there. Um, It was she to whom... The angel Gabriel first appeared. It was she to whom the explanation was given of what God was about to do. 
It was in her womb that the Son of God was conceived, and from her womb that he was born into this world. And it is she who told the story of the birth of Christ and all of the events that surrounded it so that Luke could record it for us in his gospel. She was his source. And of course, none of us can keep Christmas in quite the way Mary did by giving birth to Jesus Christ. Shouldn't try that. That that was a unique and unrepeatable event, we will all agree. But we can observe, can't we, and, and emulate the choices that Mary made through what became for her a radically disruptive and life-altering series of experiences in order to draw lessons about welcoming the Savior into our world and into our lives. And I'd like to suggest to you that first of all, the first, the first thing that stands out to me regarding Mary is that she chose obedience. She chose obedience. It is surprising to realize that in all of the Bible, we read only two lines, two lines alone from the lips of Mary. They're both here in Luke 1, the text we read together earlier. So let's just revisit it together. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, first line, first words from the lips of Mary, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, I think it's interesting to note that Mary wasn't objecting to what the angel was announcing. She was troubled, Luke says, at the angel's greeting. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Seems simple on paper, right? Now, what does it mean when a, when a complete stranger who, who seems a little different than everybody else for some reason greets you in those words? The word Luke uses here means for troubled means an acute agitation of mind and heart that had Mary going back and forth between her inner thoughts and her outer emotions in an attempt to somehow get it together, to bring it all together, to get a grip on what she was going to, uh, what she was hearing. We might say today her mind was racing, her, her heart was probably pounding, but after the angel had announced what was going to happen and what she was going to experience, her only question was how? How? I mean, I'm betrothed, but we're not married. We haven't shared the marriage bed just yet, so how is this going to happen? And as in emails and in texts, we, we don't hear the tone of her question. And as I kind of thought about 
possible tones for that statement. It struck me that it, it might even have been sarcastic or skeptical or even dismissive. Something like, yeah, right. Who are you? Why are you saying these things to me? But the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, second set of words from the mouth of Mary, second and final from the mouth of Mary, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Just two lines. How will this be since I'm a virgin? And behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. How crucial do you think this moment and this decision really was? I mean, what if Mary had said, Nah, meh, you just have to find someone else. What might be the long-term implications for us today? I shudder to think. Uh, how important was it for all of humanity that Mary, in her short lifetime, had already settled the question of her own identity and her own availability as a servant of the Lord so that she could say, in the moment when it mattered most, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. See, see, the, that, that statement of, of her sense of personal identity formed the foundation for the second part of that sentence. I am. This is the way I think of myself. This is how I understand my life. I am the servant of the Lord. And because that was true and because that was a settled thing in her own mind and heart, she was able to then say, let it be to me according to your word. If you're ever pondering the question of why God chose Mary, and I think it's a good, it's a good question to ponder, why God chose Mary out of all the young women in Israel to be the mother of his son, consider as part of your ponderings her obedience. What kind of home, if you were God, would would you choose to have your son grow up in? Consider his posture, Jesus' posture, who said, My meat and drink is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. Let me ask you, how does your obedience to God factor into your understanding of what it means to keep Christmas? Is that even a consideration? There's far-reaching significance, I think, to the repeating refrain in Emily Elliott's Christmas hymn, which says, O come to my heart, Lord Jesus, there is room in my heart for thee. My heart, the place of my will, the place of my volition, the place where the decisions are made. Someone once quipped that there's about as much room in our hearts for Jesus during the Christmas season as there was in Bethlehem when Mary and Joseph arrived. 
And then consider that in choosing obedience, Mary embraced the chaos that resulted in her life from the choice that she made. And if you ever find yourself complaining about the chaos of your Christmas, just take a moment to compare it to Mary's. Some of the chaos she might have anticipated, for example, the the at least initial suspicion, the sense of betrayal, the deep disappointment of Joseph, her betrothed, such that he had made the decision to divorce her quietly. Misunderstanding on the part of her family, of Joseph's family, of, of her friends, of, of her siblings, of the entire village of Nazareth, the whispers, the gossip, the scorn that must have come from all of them surrounding her suspected fornication. When after a few months away, she returned from Elizabeth's home with a baby bump that was hard to disguise, and in time, the rumors of Jesus' illegitimate birth, which seemed to have followed him throughout his life and ministry. But other contributors to the chaos she could not have anticipated, including a hurried wedding, a a very uncomfortable relocation from Nazareth to Bethlehem late in her pregnancy, We don't know that she rode on a donkey. (laughs) We don't know how she traveled. But she had to have been uncomfortable. There wasn't any real comfortable forms of transportation in those days. And then giving birth to her son, not not in the comfort and familiarity of her home with loved ones around her, but but all alone, with the exception of Joseph, in an unfamiliar town, in an uncomfortable setting. And then surprise visits from unknown stinky shepherds and unexpected exotic foreigners and later having to flee Bethlehem with Joseph and travel all the way to Egypt at the direction of an angel to protect the life of her son from the genocidal attack of King Herod. Chaos. Chaos. Sometimes the choice of obedience can be costly. Mary understood herself to be a servant of the Lord. Without her submissive obedience, there is no Christmas. Amidst the chaos, Mary chose her focus. It's represented by the statement in Luke 2, verse 19, After Jesus was born, after she had wrapped him in swaddling cloths, after she had laid him in a manger, after recovering at least a little from her delivery, after the visit of shepherds who told this amazing story of angels appearing to them and directing them to Bethlehem to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, we read in verse 19 of chapter 2, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Luke uses an interesting word here, a surprising word that gets translated all these things. And the word is remata, not remata like the hotels, but remata. The plural of a word that's familiar to some of you, the singular is rema. And it simply means a thing spoken, a spoken word. It's commonly used in the New Testament for the Lord speaking his dynamic, living, personal word into the life of a believer to, to stimulate faith, to encourage obedience within them. And so Mary's taking it all in. She's, she's treasuring it 
all up in her heart and mind, all that she was seeing, all that she was hearing, all that she was feeling, and through it all, God was speaking faith and encouragement into her life. I'm reminded of that verse in Psalm 131.2, where David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. It's one of the scriptures that was read for us earlier. As events swirled around her, Mary also calmed and quieted her soul. And she could have allowed herself to become anxious, be overwhelmed by it all. But instead, Mary chose her focus. And because of that, she was able not only to take in what was happening to her and around her, but also to experience the presence and the power of God with her and in her. See, for Mary, Christmas didn't mean Christmas presents. But God's unique and special presence as she cradled his son, Yeshua, Jesus. We might think of the description here in Luke 2.19 as contemplation. Contemplation. What, what is contemplation? If we consult a dictionary, again, a dictionary, we'll find that contemplation is taking time to look thoughtfully at a, a person or a thing or an idea at length for the purpose of gaining understanding and insight. But if we consult God's word, we'll find that contemplation is actually a synonym for the spiritual practice, the spiritual discipline, if you will, of meditation. Biblical meditation is not like Eastern meditation. It's not emptying your mind. It's not centering on a mantra. But rather, biblical meditation is immersed in Scripture. It calls us to be singularly attentive to the Word of God, to reflect on it, to to ruminate on it, while also being attentive to the personal presence of the Spirit of God with you and in you. And to be attentive at, to be attentive at a deep level, we need to do what David did, what Mary emulated. We need to calm and quiet our souls. Solitude then and silence become essential. And not surprisingly, distraction is the singular obstacle to contemplation and therefore to spiritual growth in general. And uh, this particular season we're about, we're entering into, uh, seems to offer a great deal more distraction than most, than most other seasons of the year, wouldn't you agree? So my word for Mary in this season and in this setting is contemplative, contemplative. All of the evidence suggests that she was a woman who thought deeply, who possessed an active and and reflective mind, and that her mind was submitted to the sovereign leadership of God. If you want to understand that a little better, read the section of Luke chapter 1. I don't have time to get into it today. I wanted to, but I realized I'd bitten off way more than I could chew. But go to Luke chapter 1 and read Mary's encounter with Elizabeth. When she went to visit Elizabeth, what happened at the door of Elizabeth's home, and then how Mary responds, and the depth, the biblical depth, and the spiritual insight that she just exudes, it just flows out of her. 
You wouldn't expect that. I wouldn't expect that from a 15-year-old girl. But it tells us, it just reflects to us the kind of young woman that Mary was. I recently heard someone say this, that we expect Christmas to be a season filled with magic, and yet so often we experience disappointment when our deepest longings go unfulfilled. We come to the end of the day on December 25th and we say, what was that all about? Why did we do all of that? Much like you probably felt on Thursday evening when you asked yourself the question, why did I eat all of that? So I want to encourage you in this season, not just to let the season happen to you, but to attend to the deepest longings of your heart, which will require that you too carefully choose your focus. In another of his Psalms, and it too was read for us earlier, David expressed this choice of focus. He says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. And I don't know a better statement in the Old Testament for for the entire spirit of the season of Advent as we wait. It's a a season of waiting. You realize there are two seasons, right? There's the season of Advent that begins now, takes us up to the 24th of December, or 25th, rather. And that Christmas, actually, from a Christian tradition begins on the 26th of December. And so there's two seasons. There's a season of waiting and there's a season of celebrating. But we do it all up front, right? And then we collapse on Christmas. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. The season of Advent is a season of waiting for the one who is our salvation. And David says, my soul waits in silence. How then might you go about choosing what let's just call a contemplative Christmas? How might you do that? I want to make this really practical. So allow me first to suggest the two easiest things you can possibly do. The first is to spend time daily in the Word. And uh, if some of you have a, a Bible reading plan that you follow, some of you have a, a Bible study program that you're already engaged in, I would encourage you to, to continue that. But, but if you don't already have a plan, uh, why not take advantage of this daily devotional guide that we acquired for you and gave you this morning? Um, written by John Piper, every... It starts on the 1st of December and takes you right up to Christmas. Um, very brief, bite-sized devotional thoughts. Um, but each one conveys a poignant message. So use it personally. Use it with your spouse. Use it with your family. Um, one of the things that we have tried, not always with success to do as a family, uh, is to... Uh, to have an Advent devotional reading at the dinner table, um, very brief, because you know when we had when we had kids in our home, they, you know the attention span is short, so so you have to 
you have to be real practical about it. But this is really bite size and a great way to lead your family um, during this season. And the second thing would be, I would just encourage you to listen to biblically-based, underline biblically-based, Christmas music in your home, in your car, in your office. Reflect on the lyrics. So when I say biblically-based, I'm not talking about Santa, you know, Grandma just got run over by a reindeer, or Santa Claus is coming to town. Uh, Not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about biblically-based Christmas music. And, and, and reflect on the lyrics, spend time, um, sing along, and, and worship the Lord as you do. Here are a few other contemplative practices I would suggest, just, just very quickly. And that is, first of all, to set aside time and space to be quiet before the Lord. Uh, for me, um, the way my schedule works, that, that time and space often becomes available early in the morning, uh, when the house is quiet, no one, no one else is up, I can get my cup of coffee and be, be quiet with the Lord. Or, or later in the evening when everyone else has gone to bed. And I'm burning the candle at both ends, so don't do that. Just choose, choose one end or the other. But find that space, and maybe for you it's a lunchtime or it's break time uh, at work during the day. But find that space and protect it. And then I suggest, too, that you just take time to read the story of the birth of Christ and the events that surrounded it. it it's, it's recorded only in two of the Gospels, uh, Matthew and Luke. So, so go to Luke 1 and 2, go to Matthew 1 and 2. It's always surprising to me how many Christians I meet who have never actually read those chapters. Um, now read those. Ask God to speak to you through his word. Read, read slowly and attentively. Read, read repeatedly. And then... Uh, I would encourage you to to take time to memorize portions that you'd like to remember. And maybe it's just one verse, or maybe it's a larger section, maybe it's a whole chapter that you'd just like to put to memory. And when I say meditate and memorize, I mean that first of all, in order to to memorize, you have to meditate because you have to say it over and over again. And and that's what actually the, the biblical word in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for meditation, means to mutter. And... I found it better not to mutter around other people. <laughs> um, but I, I'm not sure it matters these days. You know, you, sometimes you see someone walking along and you think they're a blooming idiot because they're, they're talking out loud to someone who's not there. And then you realize they're, they're on their Bluetooth and you go, oh, okay, that's what's happening. But the whole idea of Meditation is, is rolling around the scripture on your tongue, kind of ruminating on that, uh, speaking it out loud, muttering it quietly to yourself. Uh, I, I love to ride my bicycle, and sometimes uh, I'll just take a scripture and tape it to my handlebar. Um, around here, sometimes I have to put it in a Ziploc bag first so it doesn't get wet as I ride. But, but um, that's kind of one of my times. Or, or when I'm at the, at the gym working out. But, but spend time meditating. And then when you're meditating, memorization actually becomes quite easy. Because that's just what you're doing as you meditate. Treasure it up, ponder it in your heart. And then finally, just, just let all of that lead you to prayer. Let it lead you to prayer. Uh, pour out your heart before the Lord. One, one of the things I, I've just, 
simple observation, simple application for me is that when I'm in the Word, um, I find it easier to pray because Scripture becomes my prompt, becomes my 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 spiritual director, if you will, in in how to pray. And so I'm praying the Word as it's praying it back to God as He speaks it to me. Um, pour out your heart before Him. Ask Him to meet the deepest longings of your heart in this season. Let's learn together over these weeks how to keep Christmas together. Next week, we're going to look at the life of Joseph. And so I hope you'll be here. I hope you'll invite your friends. Uh, you know, this is the time of year when uh, when people are willing to go to church. And, and so, um, you know, a lot of people come Christmas Eve, um, but uh, if they say no to that one, they just say, well, how about this Sunday? And just just invite your friends and your family, your, your neighbors, your co-workers to join you uh, here at LifePoint. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the model of Mary uh, who teaches us um, how to keep Christmas by uh, through her obedience, through her choice of focus, through the fact that she treasured up all of the things that, that she was seeing and hearing and experiencing. And, and uh, as you spoke into her life, she just treasured all of that up, drew, drew it into herself and, and pondered it in her heart and learned from it as you spoke into her life. God, we love you. We pray that we would be found in this season to have honored you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.